The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible with you, I would love for you to go ahead and open it to Judges chapter 11. We're going to be talking about Judges chapters 11 and 12 today, um, sort of entering this period in the book of we're starting to hit uh, some of my um, some of my favorite people um, in the text. Like, I don't know how you felt as you've been reading through the book of Judges with me. Um, it's been a bloody, gory mess. Um, and the good news is there's like um, 10 more chapters of it. Um, so, we're, so we're almost there. Um, and here's the story so far. Don't, don't forget... Don't forget the story. It's easy for us to, to pull a, a, an individual judge out of the story and, and sort of evaluate what they do based on their own specific part in the story. But remember, what we're reading has context, and this is the context. Um, God's people have entered into the promised land, and they promised that they were going to be obedient. That's key. There was a response. They promised that they were going to be obedient to God, and they failed miserably. Um, and what I mean by that is not, oh, there was, this, there was this circumstance that happened. Somebody else did something to them, and that caused me to respond in a certain way. Like, that's often what we think of when we fail, right? We want to shift blame to someone else. The Jewish people, the Israelites, they just completely own it. There is no one else to blame and they enter into this cycle of doing evil in God's sight. And then there's this, um, there's punishment and there's consequences. And they cry out to God. Most of the time, their cries to God are deliver us, save us. Only one time is there a call for repentance. And what God does then is he answers their prayers, not in the way that they would think, but in sending judges. And then to kind of shake things up a little bit, he sends a prophet. And then to shake things up even a little bit more, there's a king that kind of comes into play. He wasn't sent by God. He just assumed this role. So we have these judges and these prophets and this, this king. And the response every single time to being delivered by God, here's the response. It's more sin. It's just more sin. So what happens next? A couple weeks ago, we read through the story of, um, of Gideon and Abimelech leading into Abimelech. We're going to pick up at chapter 10, verse 17. At that time, the armies of Ammon had gathered for war and were camped in Gilead, and the people of Israel assembled and camped at Mizpah. Right? So this is after they've cried out. God, they actually, in chapter 10, the one time they cry out for repentance, God save us, we're sorry. The armies of the Ammonites gather against them. And this is what the leaders of Gilead say to each other. After apologizing, after repenting, they say, whoever attacks the Ammonites first will become ruler over all the people of Gilead. Do you see how they just take that control right back? God, we're sorry. We repent. Please deliver us. We want to turn from our evil Ashtoreth and Baal worship. But 
whoever leads the Ammonites, leads us against the Ammonites, will become our ruler. Here's chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah of Gilead was a great warrior. He was the son of Gilead, but his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also had several sons, and when these half-brothers grew up, they chased Jephthah off the land. You will not get any of our father's inheritance, they said, for you are the son of a prostitute. So Jephthah fled from the brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Soon he had a band of worthless rebels following him. At about this time, the Ammonites began their war against Israel. When the Ammonites attacked, the elders of Gilead sent for Jephthah in the land of Tob. The elders said, come and be our commander. Help us fight the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to them, aren't you the ones who hated me and drove me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Because we need you, the elders replied. If you lead us in battle against the Ammonites, we will make you ruler over all the people of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders, let me get this straight. If I come with you, and if the Lord gives me victory over the Ammonites, will you really make me ruler over all the people? The Lord is our witness, the elders replied. We promise to do whatever you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him their ruler and commander of the army. At Mizpah, in the presence of the Lord, Jephthah repeated what he had said to the elders. So they want a warrior. They want a great military leader. And what they get is Jephthah. And as I've been reading through this this book and these stories so many times over the past couple weeks, I couldn't help but notice, and this is, the, this is really the first time we, this sort of happens in the book of Jephthah, there are, there are a few similarities between Jephthah and Jesus, and there are lots of differences between Jephthah and Jesus. It's interesting that Jephthah was... The mother, Jephthah's mother was a prostitute, and Jesus' mother was a virgin. It's interesting that as Jephthah grew up, his, his half-brothers chased Jephthah off the land. Now, that kind of sounds to me like the religious leaders of the day chasing Jesus away. Jesus, Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in Tob and had a band of worthless rebels following him. Jesus had a group of faithful disciples following him. And I think there's this little thread of what we're starting to see in this book is is it's not going to be the judges that deliver the people. It's not going to be the prophets that deliver the people. It's not going to be a king that delivers the people. It's frankly, even if you've read this, you know it's not going to be a warrior it's going to be a combination of all of those things. And the ultimate, the ultimate answer, the ultimate fix is the person who is all of these things. And we know as Christians, we know that that person is Jesus. And I know that's kind of like an abstract concept to grab here. But as I'm reading through this, I couldn't help but just see this setup in the book. And what we learn is that Jephthah is a really terrible Christ, isn't he? He's a terrible Christ. But it's not just the comparison between Jephthah and Jesus that kind of gets some interest for me. It's kind of the comparison between Jephthah and the people of Israel. They're born of a sinful relationship. 
Jephthah is rejected, and then all of a sudden he's needed. Does that sound familiar? The people reject God, and then all of a sudden they need him? Jephthah's response, you've rejected me. Why are you calling upon me? We read this last week, or two weeks ago. The people cry out to God, and he's like, you have your own gods. Trust in them. The people of Gilead say, well, we need you back. The people of Israel say to God, we need you back. And Jephthah, like God, he relents. So we have these little comparisons and these little contrasts between Jephthah, how there's a larger picture. And we'll miss that if we just pull Jephthah out of the story. And there's a few other things that, that I noted. The people of Gilead know exactly who Jephthah is. Do you see that? We need a warrior to deliver us. Let's go find Jephthah. He's like this known character. And what's interesting is his, his origin story. He's born of a prostitute. He's chased out of town. He hangs with the wrong people. None of those things disqualify him from serving God. Do you see that in the story? Jephthah's origin story, where Jephthah came from, does not disqualify him from following and doing God's work. And this is a chapter where, where things begin to change, and that's why I'm excited to talk about the next 10 chapters of the book over the next several weeks, is we're starting to see something else go on in the story. We're starting to see people, they kind of started out good, right? And then this progression is going to culminate in Samson next week and the week after, and what a disaster of a story that is, if you know it. I think what's being revealed to us is our origin stories do not prevent us from being able to serve God. And I've talked to enough people, I've been a pastor long enough to know, that there are a lot of people who have origin stories that have gone through hardships and situations and circumstances and have caused great harm in the lives of other people and have sinned and what they've done is they've, they've said that that prevents me from serving God. God would never allow a sinner like me. God would never want me to serve him. God would never want me to come to church. God would never allow me to become a Christian. And I think this story and the ones we're going to be reading over the next few weeks um, kind of prove that to not be true. Let's keep going in the story. This is beginning at chapter tw verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of Ammon, asking, Why have you come out to fight against my land? The king of Ammon answered Jephthah's messengers, When the Israelites came out of Egypt, they stole my land from the Arnon River to the Jabbok River and all the way to the Jordan. Now then, give me back the land peacefully. Jephthah sent this message back to the Ammonite king. This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not steal any land from Moab or Ammon. When the people of Israel arrived at Kadesh on their journey from Egypt after crossing the Red Sea, they sent messengers to the king of Edom asking for permission to pass through his land, but their request was denied. Then they asked the king of Moab for similar permission, but he wouldn't let them pass through either. So the people of Israel stayed in Kadesh. Finally, they went around Edom and Moab through the wilderness. They traveled along Moab's eastern border and camped on the other side of the Arnon River. 
But they never once crossed the Arnon River into Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to King Sion of the Amorites who ruled from Heshbon, asking for permission to cross through his land to get to their destination. But King Sion didn't trust Israel to pass through his land. Instead, he mobilized this army at Jahaz and attacked them. But the Lord, the God of Israel, gave his people victory over King Zion. So Israel took control over the land of the Amorites who lived in that region, from the Arnon River to the Jabbok River, from the eastern wilderness to the Jordan. So you see, it was the Lord, the God of Israel, who took away from the land of the Amorites and who gave it to Israel. Why then should we give it back to you? You keep whatever your God, Chemosh, gives you, and we will keep whatever the Lord, our God, gives us. Are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he try to make a case against Israel for disputed land? Did he go to war against them? Israel has been living here for 300 years, inhabiting Heshbon and all its surrounding settlements, all the way to Aror and its settlements and in all the towns along the Arnon River. Why have you made no effort to recover it before now? Therefore, I have not sinned against you. Rather, you have wronged me by attacking me. Let the Lord, who is judge, decide which of us is right, Israel or Ammon. But the king of Ammon paid no attention to Jephthah's message. So one of the things that I just went and did this week, I wanted to, like, where else was this talked about in the Bible? One of the things that we want to try and do here at Westway Christian Church is encourage you to be students of the Bible. And what that looks like is and when we see another scripture or, an, or another story in the Bible that's referenced, like we should press pause on where we're at and we should go back and we should read that story. And this is all kind of a shortened version of Numbers chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 2, 26 to 37. And I think something that we can kind of take away from this story is, is that God remembers every single detail and he acts upon them. There's nothing that happens that doesn't matter. And the hard part is we start talking about a book like Numbers, and you've heard me talk about this before. Numbers is the book you hit in your Bible reading plan in February, right? And you're like, I'm going to skip to the good stuff. And what, what I would encourage you to not do is skip to the good stuff. Because it's all good stuff. Because it's the setup to what's going to happen later in the story. And what I love, when, when Jephthah confronts this king of the Ammonites, he's ready with a powerful story. He's ready with a testimony. He's ready to talk about who God is. He's ready to talk about what God had done in the lives of his people. See, Jephthah is someone who knows the power and the identity and the reality of the Lord. And I think at this part of the story, if you've, if you've been following along through 11 and a half chapters, like we know at the end of chapter 10 that people repented, and then they get Jephthah, and you read this, and here's a dude who knows his Bible, and he's talking about how awesome God is, you might be having something called hope start to build in your heart in this text. Is this the turnaround? 
Is this the moment where, where God's people are going to finally be obedient, where something good is going to happen? Well, the fact that I'm building it up means you know the answer to that question. At, time, at that time, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Not so fast, hope. And he went through the land of Gilead and Manasseh, including Mizpah and Gilead. And from there, he led an army against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. There used to be these things called records. And at this moment, it would be the noise. So Jephthah led his army against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave him victory. He crushed the Ammonites, devastating about 20 towns from Aror to an area named Minith, and as far away as Abel Karamim. In this way, Israel defeated the Ammonites, and we're like, finally, hope, there's something good happening. When Jephthah returned home to Mitzvah, his daughter came out to meet him. Playing on a tambourine, and dancing for joy. Doesn't your heart just sink at this moment? She was his one and only child. He had no other sons or daughters. When he saw her, he tore his clothes in anguish. Oh, my daughter, he cried out. You've completely destroyed me. You've brought disaster on me. Notice the blame shifting. For I've made a vow to the Lord and I cannot take it back. And she said, Father, if you made a vow to the Lord, you must do to me what you have vowed, for the Lord has given you a great victory over your enemies, the Ammonites. But first, let me do this one thing. Let me go up and roam in the hills and weep with my friends for two months, because I will die a virgin. You may go, Jephthah said, and he sent her away for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never have children. When she returned home, her father kept the vow he had made, and she died a virgin. So it became a custom in Israel for young Israelite women to go away for four days each year to lament the faith of Jephthah's daughter. Well, that sure took a turn, didn't it? About three weeks ago, I, I had someone send me a text. I love it when this happens, because I get to share it with you. Okay, can we talk about Judges 11? I'm deeply disturbed. Can we also talk about how his daughter wanted to roam the hills and weep because she would never marry? Not because she was going to be a human sacrifice? Pardon my French, but I won't say what that person said next. <laughs> like, what in the world? What is going on? Do you feel that tension? Like, what, what is going on? Well, first off, I'm not going to offer you any comfort that Jephthah didn't actually kill his daughter. Because there's no evidence in the text that says that. Now, you might look online and, and, and you'll see that, that people talk about whether or not he really did or didn't, but there's zero evidence in the text. And the question that we have to ask is, does that, does that bother you? 
Does it bother you that Jephthah would do this? And I think that we have to ask another question. Based on what we've seen so far in the book of Judges, do we have any evidence to the contrary that Jephthah didn't actually sacrifice his daughter? We've seen the people worship Baals and Asherah poles, and their worship included child sacrifice. Jephthah's knowledge of his Bible, no matter how detailed or how eloquent he was with it, was irrelevant in this moment. To quote John Thomas in our elders meeting last week when we read this text, the very first thing he said was, what a stupid vow. What a stupid thing to say. What did he think was going to come out of the house? Like, seriously, what did he think was going to come out of the house? But let's be careful in judging Jephthah. We should judge Jephthah. But let's judge Jephthah with some, how about this, a little bit of awareness. How many of you have ever made an if then agreement with God. Come on, let's see it. The rest of you are lying. How many of us have made an if-then agreement with God? God, if you, if you help me pass this test, I mean, I know I didn't study for it, so if you miraculously put the right words <laughs> into my pen, right? God, if if this state patrolman doesn't give me a speeding ticket. <laughs> God, if Nebraska beats Ohio State in two weeks. <laughs> right, how many of us, how many of us have made those kinds of vows? And the question is, did you keep it? Did you keep your vow? Did you, did you fulfill your end of the bargain? And what we have to ask about, what we have to ask is, like, why didn't you? And I, like, I know, like, okay, if I pass this test, I'll go to church every Sunday for the rest of my life. Maybe you think that's not big of a, that, that big of a vow compared to Jephthah and his daughter. But the question we also have to ask is, like, what do we want God to do in this situation? We want him to intervene, Right? That's the answer to that question. We want God to intervene to stop Jephthah. And what I've noticed about the way I want God to intervene in different situations, I often want God to intervene in the lives of other people, but not me. I want God to stop Jephthah. I want God to stop other people from doing evil and wicked things. But when it comes to me, what I want to do is I want to exercise my free will. Is anyone else with me on this? We actually don't want God to intervene. I mean, we say we do, but we actually don't want God to intervene. We want to pick and choose which commands we're going to obey. We want to pick and choose what we're going to follow from Scripture. And at some point when I was going through this, I wrote down, um, we don't get to blame God for our own stupidity. And I think that's, as we're reading through this text, I think that's, that's kind of what we want to do. We want to blame God for our own stupidity. And I think what we can, 
recognize through this text is, um, is God's silence does not indicate approval. God's silence does not indicate approval. What have you seen God actually approve in this book? There have been times when he's been silent, and there's been times where he's brought the heat, right? Haven't you experienced that in your own lives? There have been times where God has been silent in the face of my disobedience, and then there have been other times where he's brought it, where the consequences of my sin come fully to bear on my life. And see, I would say that both of those things are an indicator of God's grace. God allows us free will. He gives us choices. And as far as Jephthah goes, like he knew the history. He knew God's power to deliver people. He knew of God's ability to, to deliver people. And Jephthah knew something else. Jephthah knew that a vow to the Lord must be kept. Must be kept. And maybe that sounds harsh, so let's talk about what Jesus has to say about vows. This is Matthew 5, 33 to 37. I wonder if he had a certain situation in his mind when he said this. You've also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. That's Jephthah, right? But I say, do not make any vows. Oh, man. Like, wouldn't that have just fixed the problem? Imagine being Jephthah, being told you are going to defeat the Ammonites. Jephthah, you're going to defeat the Ammonites. Jephthah's move isn't to praise God or thank God or walk forward in confidence. His move is to say, well, if I do, I'm going to sacrifice whatever comes out the front door of my house. What a moron. But I say, do not make any vows. This is Matthew 5, 34. Do not say by heaven because heaven is God's throne. And do not say by the earth because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head, for you can't turn one hair black or white. Just say a simple, yes, I will. Or no, I won't. Anything else is from the evil one. Can you imagine what would have happened if Jephthah just hadn't made this vow? How great, like, how great the story could have ended. But instead, he does this really stupid thing. And as we've been talking about throughout the book, we're seeing there are no minor disobediences. Have you recognized that in the text? Have you seen like, just like a little thing that I do that I'm not supposed to do leads to more and more consequences down the road? Have you experienced that in your own life? Like I'm going to give on this little thing and then that, that, like really, like where did that come from? Have you ever experienced that in your life? You started off in some minor sin and the next thing you know, your entire world is coming to an end. Like isn't that Jephthah's story? Again, what did he think was going to come out the door? He's probably cocky. I'm going to sacrifice to God. Yep, your daughter. Also, have you noticed that each judge outdoes the previous judge in chaos, death, and destruction? And again, it's not linear. 
We've talked about this. These stories aren't like one after the other. There's a great chart that we posted on our, our church website for the series of this that talks about kind of like where each of the judges operated and they operated throughout is, uh, Israel kind of all at the same time. So it's not necessarily that, 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 that it started off here and is, is going to end here, but it's all kind of happening at the same time. It's because there are no minor disobediences. There's no such thing as a minor sin. But the judges are getting worse and worse and worse. Let's pick up Judges chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Then the people of Ephraim mobilized an army and crossed over the Jordan River to Zaphon. They sent this message to Jephthah. Why didn't you call over us for us to help you fight against the Ammonites? That's just my translation. Listen, listen, to, the, listen to this. We're going to burn down your house with you in it. That escalated quickly. Jephthah replied, I summoned you at the beginning of the dispute, but you refused to come. You failed to help us in our struggle against Ammon. So when I realized you weren't coming, I risked my life and went out to battle without you, and the Lord gave me victory over the Ammonites. So why have you now come to fight me? The people of Ephraim responded, You men of Gilead are nothing more than fugitives of Ephraim and Manasseh. So Jephthah gathered up all the men of Gilead and attacked the men of Ephraim and defeated them. Jephthah captured the shallow crossings of the Jordan River, and whenever a fugitive from Ephraim tried to go back across, the men of Gilead would challenge him. Are you a member of the tribe of Ephraim? They would ask. If the man said, no, I'm not, they would tell him to say, Shibboleth. If he was from Ephraim, he would say, Sibboleth, because people from Ephraim cannot pronounce, cannot pronounce the word correctly. Then they would take him and kill him at the shallow crossings of the Jordan. In all, 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Jephthah judged Israel for six years. When he died, he was buried in one of the towns of Gilead. After Jephthah died, Ibzan from Bethlehem judged Israel. From where? Bethlehem. Here's a little taste. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He sent his sons to marry men outside his clan, and he brought in 30 young women from outside his clan to marry his sons. Ibsen judged Israel for seven years. When he died, he was buried at Bethlehem. After Ibsen died, Elon from the tribe of Zebulun judged Israel for 10 years. When he died, he was buried at Ihalon in Zebulun. After Elon died, Abdon, son of Hillel from Pirathon, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. Life goals. <laughs> he judged Israel for eight years. When he died, he was buried at Pirith, Pirithon and Ephraim on the hill country of the Amalekites. So we just go back to the beginning of chapter 12 for a minute. Um, earlier in the story, if we remember that this is a context, there was another time where the Ephraimites came out. Do you remember that? When they went to Gideon and they said, why didn't you call on us? And Gideon kind of played along with their nonsense. And Jephthah kind of takes it to the nth degree by killing 42,000 of them because they can't, can't pronounce a letter. So this is what Judges 11 and 12 say. 
And we've talked a little bit about what it means. But the question that we have to answer, like at the end of the sermon, I get to this point every week when I'm writing my message, is who cares? Right? Who cares? We read this and we ask, what, who cares? Why should this matter? As I just spent more and more time in these chapters over the last week and a half or so, um, one of the things that I noticed was other stories of deliverance throughout the book of um, Judges have focused on the weapon. They focused on the battle. Like this person jumped off the horse and they were chased and they went into a tent and lay down and jail hit him with a tent peg. Right? We get like this, this rousing battle story. We hear about um, briars, people whipping people with briars. We think about a, a millstone being tossed out of a tower. We think about Ehud stabbing somebody in the stomach and his guts coming out. Well, did you notice there's none of that in Jephthah? In Judges 11, 1 to 11, what I find interesting is Jephthah uses words. And he makes the elders in Gilead clearly state what they want from him and what he will receive if he does what they want. In Judges eleven twelve to 28, he clearly articulates with words the story of Israel. See, he knows his Bible. In Judges eleven twenty nine to 40, he uses his words carelessly and flippantly, and that leads to the death of his daughter at his own hands. And then, in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 12, he uses the ability of others to pronounce or not to pronounce a certain word to separate the tribes of Israel from one another. And then they kill the 42,000 people who don't know how to say the word. I wonder if we see how powerful the tongue is if we recognize the weapon of the tongue. In the eighth grade, I was in Miss Goza's uh, language arts class. We're sitting in class one day, and Chris Byers, sitting next to me, reaches over, touches my head, touches my hair, rubs his fingers together, and says, enough grease to cook a chicken. I'm glad you laughed at my trauma. Thank you. <laughs> like that was 39 years ago. That was 39 years ago. And I remember it like it was yesterday. See, James says that our tongue is a whole world of wickedness. It corrupts our entire body. It's a fire lit in hell itself. It's restless and evil filled with deadly poison. I think what we're seeing in this story of Jephthah, if we look carefully and closely, is we're seeing the power of words. And this also points to Christ, doesn't it? How many times in the ministry of Jesus did he just speak did he just talk? Did he lay waste to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? What we're seeing is this buildup in the book. 
There's not a judge that's going to save us. There's not a prophet that's going to save us. There's not a king that's going to save us. There's not a warrior that's going to save us. It's going to be a combination of all of those things. And, and that combination in that one person, his name is Jesus Christ, by the way, is not going to have any of these flaws. I don't know if you can call Jephthah killing his daughter a flaw. I might have minimized that a little bit. But what we're going to find in Christ is not a flawed deliverer, not a flawed rescuer, but one who is a complete rescuer, is a complete judge, complete prophet, complete king, complete warrior. But James also says that our tongues also have the ability to praise God. See, with our tongues, we have the ability to build up one another. Right before our time together today, Kay Meininger 1008'd me. And if you don't know what that is, that's where a person comes up to you at 1008 and says, hey, can you do this thing today that I wasn't like prepared for? And I'm going to do your 1008 today, Kay. Because this is an opportunity for us to celebrate how we build up and encourage one another. There are not words to express our gratitude for the prayers, cards, food, memorials, and many expressions of love and compassion shown to our family and the loss of our loved one. There are so many expressing their love and concern behind the scenes, but that did not go unnoticed. Thank you for being there for us. We love you, the Meininger family. See, I think we have to ask the question, how are we using our tongues? How are we using our words? And the answer is just look at the words that come out of your mouth. What are we saying to other people? When we're on Facebook, what are we typing to other people? What does that reveal about the depth of our hearts? And I think what we're seeing in Jephthah, it's not just mighty deeds that matter, but it's words that matter. And you have the ability to say something that someone is going to remember for 39 years. And what you might want to say is something that's encouraging. What you might want to say is something that's going to show love and kindness and grace. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for your word this morning. That was ironic. I'm thankful for your word this morning. I'm thankful for the way that you talk to us, for the way that you encourage us, for the way that you challenge us, for the way that you convict us. Thankful for the way that you love us through your word. God, help us to remember that the most powerful weapon that we have is the word. The ability to proclaim your son, Jesus. Help us to be obedient to that. It's in your son's name we pray.